This episode of the Film Comment Podcast is brought to you by Flea. Making Oscar History is the first film ever nominated for Best Documentary Feature, Best Animated Feature, and Best International Film. Flea follows the story of Amin, an Afghani refugee forced to leave his home as a young child with his mother and siblings. Through the brilliant use of animation, director Jonas Poher Rasmussen brings the story of trauma, identity, and acceptance to life. Peter Travers calls Flea a cinema experience like no other. Watch it now on demand and on Hulu. Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. I'm Devika Girish. And I'm Clinton Crute. We're the editors of Film Comment. The ongoing horrors of war in Ukraine have raised questions for art communities around the world. How can we meaningfully respond to this crisis? How can we support and defend artists and art in the face of cultural and material destruction? And how can art and cinema in particular help us grapple with our collective past and present? To delve into these questions, we invited two scholars, Anastasia Osipova and Lucas Brasiskis, to the podcast. Lucas, who is a curator at EFLUX, recently programmed films by the contemporary Ukrainian artists Pyotr Armianovsky and Mykolo Rydny as a fundraiser event. Taking these films as a starting point, we dug into the cinema of Ukraine, from the archival documentaries and searing fictions of Sergei Loznitsa to the work of Sergei Parajanov, Larissa Shepitko, and many more. We've included a list of links, resources, and suggestions for donations in the show notes. We hope you find the conversation as illuminating as we did. Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. Once again, we have a very special episode. As I often say, every episode here is special. But I think today's is particularly special. Today's is particularly special. This is true. We're extremely excited to have two guests who have never joined us before. Nasha, do you want to introduce yourself? Sure. Thank you for having me, uh, Devika and Clint. My name is Anastasia Ospova. I also go by Nastya for short. And I am currently an assistant professor of Slavic studies at uh, the University of Colorado in Boulder. I'm also a Ukrainian citizen from Kiev, um, and this is an interesting time. I hope, to say the least. Yeah, I hope your family is safe, uh, family and friends. My family has become refugees last week, but they're safe. <laughs> um, so, so that's a plus. And uh, and my friends are either fighting or in bomb shelters or surviving. Um, so, well, yeah. Very sorry to hear that and, you know, sending them love. And thank you for joining, you know, in at such a time. We really appreciate that. <laughs> My pleasure. I mean, the shock has worn out already. So now it's just, as Lucas can attest to, it's just a frenzy of activity. But we're here for the long haul, so might as well keep up sanity. Yeah, it's interesting that watching some of these films that we watched to prepare for today, I was thinking about this like constant presence of violence and looming war as part of just background noise of everyday life for some of these people and how they can just become like a normal part of everyday life for residents. Our other guest referred to obliquely, Lucas. Do you want to introduce yourself, please? Uh, hi, everyone. Uh, thanks. Devika yeah, and Clinton. It's also nice to talk at this difficult and, you know, pretty stressful situation. So I'm Lukas Brasiskis. I'm associate creator for film and video 
for Reflux and now basically finishing my PhD at NYU in the Department of Cinema Studies. I think it's timely discussion we are having here now. Yeah, and the topic very loosely was just sort of uh, Ukrainian cinema when we took as kind of a jumping off point. A program that screened last night at Eflux, Lucas, that you, I think, programmed, is that correct? We programmed like uh, together with Anton and Amal. We're basically programming all the events, three of us, uh, for the screening room, which is a very new place. We opened in that style, basically at Clinton Hill, but once I to class on Avenue. So that was one of the events, but definitely not planned. We decided that it's really time that actually planned this event and we have connections with uh, a lot of Ukrainian artists uh, who are literally as nasty as family like now defending their country and they're all either in self-defense groups or you know volunteering for you know medical health this and that and it, it was very strange situation when you email artists and asking you know for the film for the screening and, and you get the screening as usual you get a screener, you get, you know, like a synopsis, but also the message that, yeah, um, I'm, I'm, I'm literally now in, in, in a bomb shelter and I'm, or I'm volunteering in Kiev and um, yeah, we're staying strong. And you don't even know what to really answer back because it's, it's not what you used to. Yeah. Yeah. It's unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, one reason we wanted to have you guys on and talk about this was also to kind of grapple with what to make of art in these times and, you know, how to talk about Ukrainian art and cinema. Whenever something like this happens, the film industry jumps to capitalize on it, you know, and like you see publicists sending out emails and you see programs coming up. But how to make it not opportunistic and really use art as a meaningful way to understand, you know, what's going on in the world. And Lucas, the films that you showed were excellent examples of that. And of course, all the proceeds went to food and medical relief in Ukraine. Maybe you could tell us a little about the films, why you chose them who those two artists are, that would be a good point to start it off. Thank you for asking about that, because actually that's what we have discussed at Eflux before actually having the event. Of course, one, one reason was uh, very practical to collect some money and, and all the money from tickets. And people were also encouraged to do bigger donations, uh, went uh, to the distribution of uh, food and medicine in Kiev. So that was one reason. Another reason was somehow related to what you said on Eflux, like online for like a year, or a year and a half ago, we showed some, you know, Ukrainian films and and we discussed with Anton, the director of Eflux, but in a way it's strange because now people like all talking about it and and we had full house and this and that. But like a year ago, you know, if, if you have a Ukrainian film screening, of course, uh, uh, some cinephiles, some uh, people who are like specifically interested in the region would come, but would never be so, you know, hot topic. So we felt like it's, it's not what we really want to uh respond to it's not just because you know as you said capitalizing organizations capitalizing on that but that also was a reason uh, why we chose these filmmakers because uh, we showed films by Piotr Armanovsky and Mikola uh, Ridney both are uh, pretty young artists both are uh, born in 1985 and they're not like super known filmmakers or artists making films but we knew a few works that we thought 
they are really beautiful and also responding to the station in very interesting way. So very briefly, we showed uh, uh, Armanovsky's Piotr's film called Mustard in the Gardens and Mikola's film No, No, No. And both films are very different uh, stylistically. Uh, Armanovsky is basically following uh, his girlfriend coming back to the eastern Ukraine during the war already that started in 2014. But of course, it was not a full-scale invasion that we're having now. And basically not uh, focusing on the happening war. The film focused on the main character, uh, Olena, who is basically feeling very bad because of the situation, uh, ongoing war, because she has a family there, she has uh, friends in Lviv, and, and she's basically working through that. And it's beautiful film because it's in the nature, it's, the shots are beautiful, like the, the pace of the film, but you time by time hear bombings, you hear artillery. And the details like this uh, really uh, make a big argument in, in, in that subtle film. And the second film was also somehow related that uh, it focused on, on young people, a young generation living in Kharkiv, it's an European town that's now totally bombed, like almost destroyed and somehow also like uh, tackling the situation because few of them would like to go to the war uh, you know they're not like so-called uh, most patriotic people at that time but they all of course support Ukraine but also they somehow have to process this what's happening because they just party there at the same time there's like bombings around and uh, and and you know they, they go to travel somewhere they meet soldiers who tell like all these things like atrocious situations they went through and and that young generation is basically still living their everyday life so our idea was like focus more you know uh, not on the war or war atrocities but on the emotions uncertainties uh, even like ruptures in uh, daily life of a young ukrainians uh, uh, and it was uh, really masterfully uh, recorded and and edited by these two young artists uh, who are really we had a premieres here in new york uh, at eflux screening room so we thought, okay, we have to do a certain take uh, instead of generally just repeating the, you know, most known Ukrainian uh, film cinema examples. And I think it, it was very nice because the filmmakers were kind of in touch with us and they were very happy that at this time there is a, some kind of support of, of this type. Can I jump in very quickly? I just want to continue building on what Lucas has mentioned. And I would just like to emphasize that, again, I'm repeating what Lucas has said, that war did not start on February 24th. It started in 2014, right? So we've had eight years of war. It's It's been more localized, but at the same time, it has been the most decisive factor in shaping Ukrainian cultural life. And Devika, you asked about um, how do we represent war, right? And in some ways, uh, this question has already became endemic for Ukrainian filmmaking and contemporary art scene for the last decade, right? And um, and in a way, filmmakers actually like Mikola Ridney, who Lucas, you showed, they are already articulating a, a certain sense of fatigue with, uh, with the exploitation of the theme of war, right? Because that became just a very easy go-to. Like, okay, what does America or what does Europe want to know about Ukraine, well, we'll show them the horrors of war and maybe invite them to our rave scene. And so actually, one of the things that we see in Mikola Ridna's film and in his other projects is a desire to, as Lucas says, process what it means to live under this dual pressure of Russian imperialist propaganda and the, the kind of escalating internal Ukrainian ramping up of militarization and traditionalism and how to articulate a position of sanity in, in the midst of it, right? Um, so one of the characters 
case in the films that Lucas has showed is a, um, I think it's a queer person, right, who has been beaten up by a Ukrainian um, kind of neo-Nazis, right? And uh, and this sort of exploration of living under this dual tension um, is something that is very central to Ridne's work in general. Um, he organized this running TV show or a web platform called Asbroyni um, in the Bespechni, Armed and Dangerous, uh, which is a kind of collective of artists reflecting on this increasing militarization within Ukrainian culture. I mean, formally, it's a very interesting movie. There's these moments where you have videos taken from, I think, just the open internet of images of war that in the distance, always like on the horizon from, I think, the occupied territories. Then there's these other interviews with these characters and individuals and groups in Ukraine, right? Yes. Yeah. And the other film also, uh, sorry, Mustard in the Garden, is that correct? Yes, that's correct. <laughs> I was really struck by the protagonist, the filmmaker's girlfriend, who's returning to her home in this war-torn uh, part of the country. There's a moment where if she's just tired of supporting the war, so she she doesn't really want to, you know, she pawned her hairpin to donate to the army, something like that. But now she's tired of that militarization that you're talking about, Nastia. And I found that really interesting that obviously the films are critiquing the war and what, you know, the horrible tragedy that regular people have to experience living under war. But it's also pointing to the ways in which these situations create this toxic nationalism that regular people then feel trapped within. And, you know, We've seen historically how the world system really forces that and how, you know, these conflicts force that and how regular people then are placed in these very difficult ideological positions when all they want is to, you know, continue living harmoniously. Like she says, she herself has no animosity towards Western or Eastern Ukrainians, but it becomes so difficult to articulate this more humanistic position in in the environment. So I thought that both films were really striking in that way. And I'm wondering, Nasia, as a Ukrainian, if you could speak a little more to, you know, that position and whether, and I thought it was really interesting. You mentioned that these films don't seem to you like they're playing into the like Western media hunger for a certain kind of narrative. I'd love to hear you talk a little more about like what you feel like is the Ukrainian response in terms of art to those pressures. Um, thank you, Derica. Um, I, it's really hard to maintain a position of, uh, let's say, humanistic tolerance and complexity within contemporary Ukrainian art scene, right? Precisely because of those dual pressures. Um, at the same time, I think most interesting contemporary Ukrainian writers, filmmakers, and artists are are doing that. Ridne um, is a good example, uh, but it's not easy. Um, and over the last years, one of the challenges that people faced was the danger of direct physical harassment by the far right. So we had many cases where art institutions would uh, would be raided by the by the far right militia, right? So there are kind of stories of art groups who would have to flee Donetsk. Um, so sort of most notable and interesting story is this art center called Izalatsen. Maybe I'll go on this little detour because it's a fascinating um, story and horrifying too. Uh, so Izalatsa was a, a factory, a Soviet factory in Donetsk that manufactured isolation electric cables. And eventually, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, formation of independent Ukraine, it went the way of many uh, industrial spaces and became an artist loft and an art center. 
And uh, when Donetsk was overtaken by the separatists, the artists were chased out, their collections were thrown into garbage, uh, and their computers requisitioned, and the space became essentially a concentration camp, a paralegal prison where captured people are kept and beaten and tortured. Um, sometimes they're held for ransom and people can buy them out. It's also a place to store uh, stolen cars. Um, and if you guys are interested, there is a... Uh, a memoir from of the survivor of that concentration camp that um, Harvard University Press has just put out in English translation. Um, it's by Stanislav Asiev. Anyway, so this group um, has relocated to Kiev, um, and in Kiev too, they would continue having discussions and sometimes have to face far-right aggression inside Kiev, right? This time from Ukrainian side. So how do you navigate a position between that? It's, it's not easy. And um, another thing that kind of element of this whole cultural picture that comes directly into um, under pressure is the question of how to deal with Soviet legacy and also with any emancipatory potential or humanistic potential that it could have contained. So everybody focuses on sort of the repressive sides of it, which are undeniable, but at the same time, uh, the mechanisms of assimilating Soviet culture and legacy, which are all over the place in Ukraine, are not there. And the contemporary, let's say, cultural sphere didn't create them, right, and actively resisted. And maybe once we get to a discussion of uh, Lesnitsa's Babiyar, we can talk about it some more because it was received quite aggressively in Ukraine. Uh, people were not happy about this film for the most part. And so for a lot of artists in Ukraine over the last eight years, this attempt to articulate position of complexity that uh, doesn't fold into either of the propaganda camps would go via the route of trying to reassimilate the legacy of Ukrainian, avant-garde, modernism, Soviet art. A third element seems to be the pull of like Western liberal democracies as well in Europe. And it seems like these, especially in both of these artist films, these characters are sort of being pulled by that influence as well. And that's sort of a looming propaganda coming at them from that direction as well. And I think what's striking about these films is really the way that these characters seem so Western in their attitudes. Maybe Western is the wrong word. Let's say European in their attitudes. Yeah. In, in case like these two films, as you noticed, uh, also uh, importantly uh, featuring the characters from the Eastern Ukraine, both of them. And, and then, you know, we, we have this uh, um, special situation that they, in both films, characters are referring to the Western Ukraine, uh, as uh, specifically in The Master in the Garden, the main uh, character talks of Total Viv and about kind of uh, difference between Viv and here uh, own native Eastern uh, Ukraine. And uh, here I think we could zoom out a little as well. And I'm sure Nasta could do better uh, than me. She's from Ukraine, but also Ukraine is, is a huge country. And, and it's also like uh, the history of Ukraine is super complicated uh, in a way that uh, these parts of a country were like undergoing like a different, uh, you know, even after Second World War, uh, even before Soviet Union, uh, and specifically after the First World War, uh, there were a lot of uh, different divisions within Ukraine and people like had different ideas what Ukraine could be. And then, of course, the Soviet Union, like Eastern U Ukraine, uh, was industrialized and it was like a part of a mainly industrial uh, part of Ukraine. Western Ukraine went a bit like different direction. And also historically, there are different affiliations with in Western Ukraine that people are like so close to Slovakia, 
to Poland, uh, Eastern Ukraine, like has a very different um, geographic location. And when you like actually have to process in this situation, uh, for me, uh, um, was also uh, really uh, interesting. Of course, all the countries have this nationalist minorities that are uh, including US now, right? That uh, throughout this eight years, of course, there were a lot of uh, tensions uh, between very right part of Ukrainians that was sort of almost uh, in a way created by Maidan and by Russia's kind of uh, provocations, uh, never-ending conflict. But at the same time, looking from our perspective, I think it's, it's amazing that uh, people have united and, and what's happening now, uh, seemingly, you know, there is no huge divisions between West and East and people literally like uh, uh, fighting for the sovereignty of the country. So yeah, but it's, it's, it's really complicated given the history of Ukraine. Uh, and, and we wanted to focus in these two films on Eastern Ukraine, which is also important because it's so easy to talk about Western Ukraine, which uh, has like pretty less complicated position in, 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 in what's happening. You know, in Eastern Ukraine, people have families. Many, many Eastern Ukrainians have families now in Donbass, but also many Eastern Ukrainians, as I was told by my friends, have families in Russia. Uh, and, and during the conflict, they had to kind of uh, work with it. Uh, so, yeah. I think that that's a good way into talking about Oloznitsa, which Nastya mentioned, whose film Donbass, I think, screens this when this is posted, it will be have been last weekend at the Museum of the Moving Image. But it opens on April 1. Right, so. and opens widely on April 1. And a lot of his films are screening in New York this month. And as we were talking before we started recording, he's the one Ukrainian filmmaker that everyone in New York and American film culture just seems to know and keeps bringing up his films in the context you know, of current events. Donbass, though, is a film that's like this episodic, roving camera little vignettes of life in the separatist regions characters are kind of cartoonish and over the top and the stories are a little bit i wouldn't call them cartoonish and life in ukraine is over it's over the top this is kind of what i was wondering like to what extent is this like a, a realistic portrayal of life i think what's important to remember about this film is that unlike well lesnitsa has made few uh fictional films um he's primarily known as documentary filmmaker and this film is this interesting hybrid genre where it is uh everything that you see is uh, enacted by actors and some of the actors are professional and some are refugees from, from, the, from the East. And allegedly, uh, many of the vignettes that you see in the films uh, from the life of the, on the occupied territories are, are staged uh, based on the YouTube videos that were done unprofessionally. So it's, a, it's an interesting mediating genre. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm curious, Nastya, you mentioned that Babiar was not received well in Ukraine. I would love to know if that's the case with all his films, if that's the case with Donbass as well. And if you think that, you know, maybe it gets back to this assimilation of the Soviet legacy. But I am interested in this idea that he is kind of the Ukrainian filmmaker du jour in, the, in America and the West. And so how does that interact with his reception in Ukraine? I think that the, the, the difficulty that Lesnitsa poses within Ukrainian context also has everything to do with his artistic style and mastery, where uh, Lesnitsa, as you all know, resists giving commentary to the footage, right? And uh, as the result, the material that he is presenting is difficult to read to the people who are not familiar with the history, right? Um, for instance, when you watch Babi Yar and you see explosions in Kiev, 
unless you know the history that those explosions were the result of bombs that Soviet army planted in Kiev, in the central Kiev, before uh, leaving the city and leaving it to the occupied Germans, you wouldn't know who is blowing those buildings up. You mean in the opening sequence, I think, shows these huge plumes of smoke? No, it's there in the since of the early days of the occupied Kiev. But this is just one example, right? So in all of his films, in uh, the films about Maidan um, and about the Babiyar, uh, there are all those footage uh, and, and instances which are fascinating and really contribute to the complexity of the history. But unless you know the history already somewhat, you would not be able to interpret it. And as the result, uh, among the Ukrainian artistic community, all of whom admire Lesnitsa as an artist, there is a lot of anxiety that uh, his films would be misunderstood. And that there will be, in this situation of information war with Russia, which has very, very real material consequences of human lives and livelihood being stolen, there is worry that um, he'll be misread. But misread as what? Um, sorry, when I, I just wanted to ask, like, misunderstood as what exactly? Well, uh, and Lucas, feel free to jump in at any moment. The um, The... The stumbling block in the footage uh, about uh, the Babi Yar are the scenes of Ukrainian nationalists in the West, the organization of Ukrainian nationalists uh, dressed in full costumes, uh, greeting the SS divisions and the, and the Germans with parades and Nazi salutes, right? Uh, did it happen? Absolutely. Um, is that the reason to dismiss all of Ukraine, contemporary Ukraine, as the land of Nazis, as Putin does? Absolutely not, right? But is there worry that those images will be used to bolster Putin's insane claims? You can understand where it's coming from, right? So here is the position between presenting the truth, which does decide that I'm on, but I also somewhat am now more sympathetic to the anxieties about presenting it in a way that is not contextualized to the people who do not have much familiarity with the history to be given. Yeah, I was going to say that uh, my experience of Donbass speaks to this too, because it presents this very complex political social world that if you don't have some grounding in the history and what's going on in the area, then you really, you're kind of at sea. Like, who are these people? Who's on which side? What is Nova Russia? What do these flags mean? It's very destabilizing for somebody who doesn't come to the film with a lot of knowledge are very confusing. But I think a lot of American critics respond to these films as cinema first, without really engaging with the complex politics. A little in defense of Lozniss, uh, he is, uh, as a filmmaker, he's pretty consistent in his style. And and as, as Nice, I think, mentioned, uh, yes, he is more known as a documentary filmmaker, but also in terms of his documentaries, uh, they're like, so to say, maybe two different strategies he applies. He made a lot of films based on archival footage. But then he also did documentaries as Maidan, Donbass, that are basically sort of observational documentaries, we can call them, uh, really not intrusive, but also like giving a lot of context without explanation, without the kind of exposition of what's happening. But like I see the consistency uh, in his both archival and, and observational documentaries in a way that he really um, relies on the spectator 
and of course you can call it cinema uh, because his editing is, is is really impressive and what he manages to do with the long films uh, they were like at least for me uh, never looked too long or like the, the editing of long takes I think he's master of that uh, but then uh, he never wants to explain the history uh, you know in, in, in this kind of like, exposes his documentary style with like uh, God's 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 voice is definitely definitely needs a context uh, to fully or get what's happening but at the same time it's it's a, some kind of archaeology of history with like film medium he's doing and zooming out it's pretty impressive to me that he's so consistent for years getting you know like different historical important moments putting them on in, in focus uh through this very specific language and 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 many people actually uh, also uh, i mean have a lot of discussions about that because he leaves a lot of room for the discussion i i mean of course you have to know i, I agree with nasa that you have to know more context to to get like into a real discussion but when he speaks about these things though he does seem very clear like he's very clear about his perspective right i think the problem is here is that we need more filmmakers i admire lesnitz and we can have more filmmakers five, five, five podcasts analyzing his approach his philosophy his understanding of the phenomenology of events and so on right uh, uh exactly uh we've only budgeted for one on this so yes He's wonderful at what he does, right? But yes, if you want a sort of PBS style documentary and want to understand kind of who is the good guy and who is the bad guy, that's definitely not the material that you should turn to. Right, right. Um, right. Not that there is a good guy or bad guy. I mean, it's also unfortunate because I think filmmakers do have a political responsibility, but they shouldn't have the responsibility to have to explain to the outside world a film that presumably they're making first for their people, you know? And of course, the value of Donbass is not in its explanation of you know the separatist conflict it's in its description of the experience of that separatist conflict I also feel like what has been mentioned about, you know, Lodnitz becoming a kind of representative of Ukrainian cinema, it also applies generally to Eastern European cinema uh, from what I experienced when I arrived to New York some years ago. Um, there is like a very strange filter, the, uh, you know, um, understanding of, of Eastern European cinema. Some filmmakers become kind of representatives and it's, we can even talk about Soviet uh, cinema. There are like so many great filmmakers, but some, just a few of them are really known, like, okay, Everybody knows Tarkovsky, but like very few people have seen like German seniors films uh, in, in US. And, and, and it's sort of somehow uh, continuous uh, after the, you know, the fall of Soviet Union uh, that some films made to the US and become kind of uh, flag, like flagments for, for, for these countries. But some films are never making here. So coming back to the Euflux event, we were like, yeah, we, that was like something we really considered. And of course, it's easy to show again. I agree with Nasta Lesnitsa and it will always work. And he's a great filmmaker. But, but yeah, we have to widen up the picture. That's all region, I think. And think about what is really somehow being been missed, uh, maybe with no bad intentions, but it could be related to a film industry and this and that. The tireless productivity of somebody like Voznitsa. He's built his own website. He distributes his own films. Like he's kind of an industry into himself. He's no longer based in Ukraine, is he? Does he make films out of Ukraine? From what I know, he really uh, spends a lot of time in Germany, but also like, for instance, shooting his last film, Mr. Landsberg, which is about like a Lithuanian independence uh, leader. He stayed in Lithuania for months. Uh, so I think he depends, uh, but definitely he, he doesn't 
live all the time in Ukraine. I don't know where is he now, actually. <laughs> Probably not in Ukraine. Well, last week, I read in the Washington Post that he was driving from Germany to Poland to pick up his parents who had just been evacuated. Mm-hmm. So um, his family still lives there. But anyway, it's not hugely important. But the reason I was asking was... I was just curious if you both perceive any trends in what sort of films and filmmakers do become popular and known here and what filmmakers don't. And I was partly wondering if it helps to be based elsewhere in Europe, for instance, or if you think that there's something more thematic. There are obviously certain narratives about Soviet history and Eastern European life that tend to appeal to Americans more, though I think Loznitsa doesn't really feed into those trends. So he he is an interesting case. I have a certain answer, but also I think we need to... um distinguish between like a general popularity and and popularity among you know film circle uh so I, <laughs> that's fair <laughs> yes <laughs> because somebody yeah but we're in the film we're circle, talking so. like he's a household name <laughs> Who and it's like no one outside of these cir- small circles in in new york probably what's a gen who's a, who's generally popular from my mom will not know who, what we're talking about yeah <laughs> yeah I think it's very much relates to how the film um, is system works. Uh, I, I think like institutions like New York Film Festival are uh, usually like uh, that's the first step bringing films and, and, and some of them are acquiring distributors later on. Um, also, I think what Devika mentioned, you know, like uh, being more savvy with, uh, you know, film industry, like film system, like, of course, staying in Europe, like having contacts what actually Lesnitsa is master of, I think, like, that also helps a lot. And and I think in the US, there is a, you know, this, uh, so to say, circle of uh, interest in uh, uh, in, in, in uh, European art cinema, and, and some filmmakers manage to get there and, and come. For younger filmmakers, of course, it's more difficult because you have to be acknowledged by the system first. And then somehow in the US, it's like a little more, you know, second step i think but of course there are like some exceptions like to new york Films festival like there were so great this selections some in, in recent years they're like uh, you know like i don't know dennis or, or somebody else would like bring somebody who is not really still a big filmmaker you know in, even in europe but as as a rule uh somehow it would not be distributed uh, in, in in the us and people would go to the festival watch the film but like um it would not become more popular in a sense that would not be uh, exposed to, to to people again. Uh, so I think it's uh, like a global question even. We could talk about other countries, but Eastern Europe is also, I don't know what will happen now. Uh, and we discussed with friends a lot about, you know, how the lenses are changing literally right now uh, towards the region. But yeah, but it was really far from, you know, the general discourse, uh, uh, political discourse in the US and for very understandable things because uh, US is dealing with its own history and, and you know, like uh, uh, imperialism, colonialism, that, that really doesn't go so far as, as, as that region. And, but that region has its own history. And something, somehow, like this event was happening now, Russia's war on Ukraine, I think, might change a little, you know, like the even understanding or uh, uh, image of the region. And, and uh, maybe cinema, of course, uh, and art uh, will get... Uh, some new venues to be discovered yeah but but also it's not a scenario that like somebody wouldn't want and unfortunately the reality is probably such that we won't have films made in ukraine for a long time 
and probably most of Ukrainian filmmaker making if it recovers and when it recovers will be done abroad. Um, so before we, we planned the podcast, we were trying to get some information about what is happening to Ukrainian film archives, if at all. Um, and we know that, again, the, even the conversation about the future of Ukrainian filmmaking seems frivolous because most of the filmmakers themselves are right now preoccupied with basic survival and, and defense of their home. Um, so, Lucas, I know that you've heard some stories about what's happening to the to the archives. Yeah, I, I hear just like uh, very brief texts like from my friends in, in, in Kiev that, yeah, there were like some... Um, steps done to make sure that uh, the state archives, including film archives, uh, uh, are safe, but uh, under the limits of the circumstances. And as, as Nastya said, it's definitely a super important thing, given the very rich history of Ukrainian cinema within Soviet Union as well. But at the same time, people are also literally engaged now in defending, uh, you know, Kiev and building barricades and, and all the, you know, older people, children are basically have to really find a place to hide from uh, probably upcoming bombing. Uh, so this is, of course, not probably the priority right now, but definitely I heard that uh, people did their best. But the interesting part to that as well, that the organizations as uh uh, state film archive as, as well as uh, Dovchenko uh, Film Center are involved in uh, some kind of uh, volunteering activities and a very uh, inspiring story here that uh, Dovchenko Film Center somehow in collaboration with Kyiv's uh, mayor's office gathered uh, projectors they have film projectors and, and arranged certain screenings in subway stations uh, you know that were turned into like a bomb shelters uh, for people who are literally there now waiting for what they don't know what will come basically waiting for something this episode of the film comment podcast is brought to you by netflix presenting the power of the dog nominated for 12 academy awards including best picture and best director jane campion whose return to cinema after 12 years has brought what critics are calling the best picture of the year With an acclaimed cast of Academy Award nominees including Benedict Cumberbatch, Kirsten Dunst, Cody Smith-McPhee, and Jesse Plemons, and a team of expert artisans including winning cinematographer Ari Wegner and composer Johnny Greenwood, Campion's The Power of the Dog tells a story of strength and vulnerability that has been embraced by the industry and audiences globally. Peter Travers of ABC News called it a triumph in every sense of the word. For your awards consideration... I also wanted to just mention, uh, I was invited to be on the jury of DocuDays UA, which is a documentary film festival in Kiev. Of course, as the months went by, January, February, it became clear that the festival couldn't happen. And it was very tragic to, you know, see the programmers emailing us about, you know, logistical changes. And, you know, I was thinking, it doesn't matter. (laughs) A film festival doesn't matter. Like, it's okay. But then they recently sent an update that the Krakow Film Festival, which happens in late May, early June, has agreed to host the competition of DocuDays UA in like a gesture of solidarity. So they'll be doing their uh, screenings there and then awarding a prize. And, you know, another just small story, but another instance of how the film community, I guess, is, you know, trying to soldier on with the support of other members of the international film world. Yes, that's probably needed support, although it doesn't change the main problem. But I think, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's what we can do.
Yeah, I mean, nonetheless, it's important that these films are saved because we we lose so much, and you know that's part of a there's violence against cinema as well. And I think that's clearly understood. It's a, it's great. It sounds like there's people on the ground doing their best to preserve this work, which kind of brings up a, a question that we'd been talking about before we started about what is defined as Ukrainian cinema. Like there are many filmmakers who kind of because of the many changes in the region terms of power in the last century like what is ukrainian cinema like what is a national cinema what is the history of that cinema i don't know if you guys can speak to that a little bit i can start maybe anasta would jump in uh it's i will try to do two voices (laughs) (laughs) it's you're just at the same time (laughs) (laughs) or or maybe you could start uh, because there is a lot of history to it uh uh, which we cannot really unpack here but as we know in in like uh, under the soviet union uh rule like this uh, all Film studios were nationalized, despite which Soviet Republic it was, uh, including, of course, Ukraine. And but uh, for years, Ukraine was, uh, you know, from the 1920s, uh, was known as a as a place where like great filmmakers coming from. And and we all know like Alexander Dovshenko, who is sort of was a pioneer of Ukrainian poetic cinema in in in, in you know like late 20s, uh, uh, early 30s. But uh, also, you know, um. They, they had this very important studios. Uh, I think one was in Yalta, which is part of like in Crimea, which is now not anymore. At this at this point, it's it's occupied and Odessa as specific. And uh, throughout the decades, uh, there are a lot of people who were uh, Ukrainian born or Ukrainian based became like one of like a part of like a foundational, you know. Um, group of people for even so-called Soviet cinema and and we could all talk about Tavshenko but also even Ziga Vertov or or later on you know Sergei Parajanov who spent a big chunk of his life in Ukraine and and married Ukrainian woman and Ukrainians feel that he is partly a Ukrainian filmmaker although he's also so to say partly Georgian and Armenian but other than Kira Muratova or even Larissa Chetko uh, who had unfortunately a very short life she doesn't didn't make many films, but but she's from Ukraine. And still, like when we are considering, you know, Soviet Union, uh, at that time, the nationalistic affiliation uh, was not so uh, important for the promotion of Soviet cinema. Uh, it's by all means, it was important for some filmmakers, of course. But um, so then Soviet Union fall, fall, fall down, we had to, um, you know, Ukrainians had to sort of revisit their own cinema history and you know like the national ukrainian cinema uh, is something that it's very related to soviet uh, film um, uh, system soviet film industry uh, but it is very very rich history and i i, I just it, like I, i'm sure uh, uh, it's, it's it's like it, it's way more complex uh, in terms of what was happening during the soviet times i don't know maybe nasty you want to jump in you've done a very excellent exposition um I, and sometimes problems emerge when we retroactively reclaim ukrainian filmmakers as national right so for instance this in february when i was in kiev i went to see an art exhibit dedicated to ukrainian modern uh, avant-garde futurism uh, and there was a it, it was in the um, arsenal art, art center huge building in kiev and there was a room dedicated to Tsikavertov. but the point of this room primarily was to point out that Man with the Movie Camera is filmed in uh, Odessa, right? The end, yeah? Uh, we're not talking about Vertefest's aesthetics, ideology, his interaction with um, 
further Soviet structures, right? All that gets taken out. Um, we just kind of need the national brand and that's about it. And it becomes really hard to think past that. So um, I don't have much optimism that it'll be, that, that this active reclamation and getting over the disavowal will be possible in the future, but I, I hope. I hope so. Do you think that's a function of this bunker mentality kind of that you've described earlier? Yeah. Yeah. I also want, I, this is a somewhat uh, not directly related anecdote, but I thought it was maybe useful. Um, so uh, speaking of contemporary Ukrainian filmmakers of note, um, I wanted to mention uh, Katerina Hornostai, uh, who is uh, also a, somebody with the kind of footing documentary tradition. She was a student of Marina Rasbeshkina in Moscow. And last week she was given the National Shevchenko Prize. So Zelensky signed in the midst of bombing and war, he signed this award and gave it to several Ukrainian artists, including Nikita Kadan and filmmakers. And she's on the list. And um, she is young and talented and interesting, but her trajectory is also very telling to me, right? So when she started making her films, um, there were documentaries, they were mostly focusing on teenagers and teenagers there spoke uh, the language that you hear spoken in reality, which is a combination of Ukrainian and Russian, uh, one person speaking Ukrainian, the other Russian, and they understand each other perfectly. Um, and, and people were very excited about it, right? Because that shows sort of functioning uh, tolerance and cultural fusion that is happening in Ukraine on its own terms, right? Not necessarily under the pressure of Russia. And in her recent film, Stop Zimlian, um, Stop Earth, she decided to, again, work with teenagers, uh, the teenagers who come from uh, central Ukraine uh, and Kiev and who are primarily, as she noted herself, uh, Russophone in their everyday life, right? They speak, sometimes some of them speak Ukrainian with parents, but among peers, they all speak Russian. All of them were not professional actors. They didn't have a script. They should kind of give them cues, but basically they would improvise. So it had this sort of documentary feel. And yet she speaks about her desire to intentionally make them speak Ukrainian uh, and remind them that they need to speak Ukrainian. And, um, and the motivation for that is to create a vision of solely Ukrainophone Ukraine and to sort of create this poster image of cool teenagers who are very fluent in Ukrainian all the time. And um, I understand where this desire is coming from, but uh, to me, it also betrays the impulse of disavowal of the existent reality and the creation of um, utopia that is more limited than, than the actual utopia that exists now of everyone understanding each other. So this is a sort of disturbing tendency. There's a propagandizing element to it. Mm, a, a little bit. Or creation of a... I, yeah, I, I watched an interview with her with a Ukrainian interviewer, and even he pushed back on it a little bit. I mean, he was like, look, I'm all for Ukrainian culture, and the more, the more, the better. But aren't you sort of, um, is there a little bit of ideological pressure here that you're exerting on reality? Yeah, I mean, you can't, you can't ignore like the ground cultural realities of the people. And that's what gets mixed up here, right? The political allegiances and the ways that people actually live on the ground is so much more mixed up. I'm speaking, for instance, from my experience as an Indian and, you know, the conflict with Pakistan. I mean, not making any direct parallels, but the visions of the states are always so detached from the ways that people actually live and the ways in which borders are blurrier than we think, uh, if, not, if not geographic borders, then cultural borders. But then again, like if you when you have a power invade a country, you're pushed into these corners. 
I had a question for you both and might be reflective of my ignorance, but you know, a lot of the films that we've been talking about are what you would call art house films or films that screen at festivals and rep cinemas. I'm curious if there is a robust commercial film culture or industry in Ukraine, and if so, what is the popular cinema like? The film Cyborg, right? Isn't that like wasn't that a major hit? Yeah, I think it was in the last last few years. Yes, uh, that Cyborg. But I, honestly, I, I'm not so knowledgeable in in, in so to say mainstream uh, Ukrainian cinema. Maybe it also like uh, uh, I, I read for different purposes, you know, the histories uh, of the film industry in the region, including Ukraine, uh, they, all the countries that kind of were like a post-Soviet uh, countries in the 90s, they went through a bit of different kind of crisis because, uh, because then this system of Soviet film uh, institutions disintegrated and it was, as I told, nationalized. Uh, it was, uh, you know, state-funded. All the film industries in, in, in the countries in the early 90s were really struggling, first of all, financially, but also, you know, like in terms of even administration and, and you know, they had to build up the industry from the scratch and 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 they would make like a film or two a year uh, for, for some years. But of course, then later on, each of the country, including Ukraine, kind of built their own industry again which was national sort of film industries and and we participate now in the european film system which is way more uh, art house uh, related so uh, for for uh, for instance i can speak from Ukrainian perspective which is way smaller than ukraine but we have just a few kind of very big productions like very few because you have to usually like a film centers uh, national film centers including uh, uh, also european funds do not give money for the big productions. So it must be done from the private money. It advertised in a certain way. It's very, very difficult to beat Hollywood. So, so it has to be commercially viable, yeah. right? Investors need a return. Yes. yes. Yeah. yes. Um, does that mean that the, these films tend to be like historical epics, is my, I'm imagining? Like you see. There was a fair share of that, yeah. yes. Yes, very often. Yeah, that's what I'm curious. Like, are they action movies? Are they, you know, historical epics? Are they war movies? Uh, is there a certain genre that stands out? There was a period of a lot of uh, romantic national epic films and, uh, and sort of films for children with... Uh, sort of time travel element when you go and meet your heroic ancestors, things like that. Any specifics, any titles spring to mind? A test, Clint. <laughs> it's a, everything is a test. <laughs> what can we show? What can we show Agnes? No. I want her to, I want her to meet her heroic ancestors who are probably more likely from Lithuania. than. Ukraine. I'll look it up. I, I saw, I saw it on the plane actually. Agnes is Clint's baby, Lucas, just so you know. <laughs> I, I'll look it up. It was on the airplane. Yeah. Like I, I could mention, yeah, like uh, I could mention Ukrainian names, but those are mainly historical epics. Um, but yeah, with Ukrainian mainstream cinema, I'm honestly not so uh, knowledgeable in it. Um, also, like a funny thing, talking about the history, that somebody like uh, Porajanov uh, or, or like there, like uh, have this popularity among masses all through uh, across you know post-Soviet Union area, and there might be some more known than some contemporary mainstream films among the population, especially older population, yes. Parajana would be more well-known than like some of the contemporary filmmakers. I would definitely say that. Uh, Just the average, sort of like a Spielbergian figure. 
it's 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 like the difference of the film uh uh and i know like the role film played i mean parajanov i mean it's a kind of uh a limit case because as we know he made just a few films just because of course he also struggled with the regime uh uh and uh, the soviet regime and and, and he was imprisoned and everything but like uh, uh filmmakers as well like we can talk about russian examples like tarkovsky or 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 it's same muratova like ukrainian filmmaker they're really known because at the same time uh, at some time there was no no mainstream cinema in soviet union there was no a kind of hollywood that would compete with the local uh or you know soviet production so to say so those films that we treat now like a part of an art house film history were like basically very widely uh, uh seen uh you know of course we can talk about comedies and, and some kind of mainstream production so but you know that was also like more maybe less art house but but even those comedies are like way more art house than what we think about uh, mainstream comedies in the US. So, so there is a strange history to this um, interest in, in what we now think like more like art filmmakers, but in, in that region, they're like also mainstream filmmakers. Yeah. Well, Cyborg, which based on a quick Google search, I think is like the highest grossing Ukrainian movie of all time, is extremely political and, and nationalistic, right? I mean, I haven't seen it, so I don't want, but that's my... That's my understanding. It is definitely. To back up Lucas's claim about the sort of mass popularity of Parajanov, or if not popularity, then at least awareness of what he did, uh, right? Remember that Parajanov's cameraman, Ilyenkov, uh, was a Ukrainian man. And then he himself went on to make a film that is called uh, White Bird with a Black Mark. Uh, it is about uh, a, kind of a Western Ukrainian village that, that has to deal with uh, Soviets, uh, Ukrainian nationalists, Romanians, Germans, all coming through. Um, and it's done in the style that, you know, you recognize from Prajanov's films. It's a bit more toned down and more narrative, but it's still there. And that is a sort of very iconic Ukrainian film, right? So in mass consciousness, those films and Prajanov's were kind of fused together. It's funny that you mentioned Ilyanka's White Bird uh Mark the Black, uh, because I was also thinking about this film uh, before our conversation. Uh, in a way, it's it's this very interesting, I mean, relation, Ilyanko's relation to Parajano, but also the, the plot of the film uh, somehow really defines, you know, the, 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 the complex history of Ukraine, because it, it, it has these two brothers uh, literally uh, fighting on, on, on different sides. One, one, one joined the Red Army and another uh, kind of this uh, Ukraine Ukrainian uh, insurgent uh, groups, uh, and, and and I mean, like that's what we have discussed: the the, the history and, and the divisions were always there, uh, and and it's pretty complicated. I, I somehow like the film a lot, and yeah, would would really recommend. Well, that's a maybe that's a good place for us to wrap up then with a, with a, a recommendation for a film that probably a lot of listeners, I imagine, are not too familiar with. I'm reading about Cyborg, and I. <laughs> I might have to check this out. <laughs> Half of the film's budget came from the Ukrainian government and also from the Ministry of Defense and the Ukrainian Armed Forces. It's so it, it's so crazy to think a of a, a US like film a film funded by the Pentagon, which is probably 
Yay. Yeah, becoming the highest grossing. Yeah, but like to explicitly. explicitly. <laughs> That's the aesthetics of war, right? <laughs> uh, apparently, the Twitter of the Ukrainian Ministry of Defense was uh, quite a sight to behold in the early days before the inv- invasion. There was just put all these images of sort of Robocop, like again, cyborgs walking through the sort of neon urban space preparing to defend the motherland. To be clear, I don't think any of us have seen Cyborg, so I don't know if they're actually cyborgs in the movie. No, it's, uh, I've seen, I think, excerpts about this uh, very important for Ukrainians national kind of uh, defense of, of Donetsk airport that that uh, that uh, was ongoing for months, and 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 were like some Ukrainian soldiers like barricaded there, and and then so they were like now treated as kind of heroes, right? Uh, and and the film was literally about that, yeah. Yeah, the, uh, in, in Ukraine, uh, people refer to sort of the Ukrainian soldiers as as kyborgy cyborgs just to sort of amp up their uh, vision of force. And... Oh, interesting. Okay. So it's not about an actual cyborg. It's about a soldier. <laughs> in regard to state funding, like uh, not, not a minister of defense funding, that's very unusual. But in terms of state funding, if you look at the European uh, film system, all the films in all the like, majority of the countries, uh, first of all, are in our house films, the first of all are funded by state. And then only the, after uh, they got some funding from state, we could apply for big European funds. So it's kind of a common uh, uh, that big films are, are, are state funded uh, in, in, in Europe. Yeah. In the US, of course, the system is totally opposite. Thank you guys both so much for joining. Uh, I I know Lucas has a great list of organizations to to donate to. Um, we'll link to that in the show notes, so please do check that out. And we'll also link to some more information about some of the films that we've discussed here today. It's been really great talking to you both, and we both learned a lot. Thank you. Yes, thank you so much. Thank you. It was really nice. And finally. <laughs> thank you, Devika. Thank you, Clint. The Film Comment Podcast features original music by Greg Einge. Film Comment is a publication of film at Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has been the home of independent film journalism, publishing in-depth interviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, arthouse, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com. This episode of the Film Comment Podcast is brought to you by Flea. Making Oscar History is the first film ever nominated for Best Documentary Feature, Best Animated Feature, and Best International Film. Flea follows the story of Amin, an Afghani refugee forced to leave his home as a young child with his mother and siblings. Through the brilliant use of animation, director Jonas Poher Rasmussen brings the story of trauma, identity, and acceptance to life. Peter Travers calls Flea, a cinema experience like no other. Watch it now on demand and on Hulu.